Dragon Slayer Audio. Good evening. This is Bill Oberst Jr. I welcome you to the Moonlit Library. Question. Where are we? You and me. Where are we right now? You in your place, me in mine, me a digital ghost, an illusion. Are we together? Because when I do these broadcasts, I sense you. I don't want you to think I'm crazy, but I really do sense you out there. I hope that perhaps the same might be true on your end of the microphone occasionally. But how can such a thing be possible when it isn't real? Where are we? Is this old library that I see around me now so vividly that I feel that I reach out and touch these books and see this cathedral ceiling, the moon shining through... Is this a fantasy place? Or is it possible that by our mutual belief we give it reality for a very brief space of time together? Or, (laughs) even more provocatively, can both things be true at the same time? Stay with me. I promise not to get too deep here in the old library tonight. (laughs) But I've been thinking this week about duality and layers of meaning. In this time of trial for the old world, I've been listening. And I hear more and more of you talking about dual things, uh, genus things, twin things, Gemini things. Things that can be held to be true at the same time. Among our listener voicemails last week was Scott. Scott called in with a dual view of the narrator in the Lovecraft story we featured last week. In the literal sense, the protagonist seemed to be a corpse. In the metaphorical sense, I felt that it spoke to man's ability to be monstrous. If man embraces that ability, he must exist in the shadows and we thrive in the dying of the light. Dual things, twin things, sometimes opposite things that can be held to be true at the same time. That's a broadening of the mind. Are you feeling that at this time in the world? Are you feeling a a broadening of ideas and possibilities for our world, for your world? an expansion of possible paths, even in a time of plague. Are you yourself feeling a desire to be more than one thing? New interest? Awakenings? Are you feeling these things? Or has your old library keeper been sniffing book dust too long? Well, I'd like to know what you think. You can let me know and the rest of your fellow listeners. 
if you're so inclined, by leaving a voicemail from anywhere in the world. We have 16 listening countries now. We'd love to hear from any of them. Just go to speakpipe.com slash Bill Obers Jr. Leave a voicemail. I'll play it on next week's show. I thank you for that. So I have for you tonight a ghost story and a folk story, one which can be taken as lighthearted Americana or as a shadow show of horror. Young Irving heard stories of ghosts in the Catskill Mountains. He was 15, and in a time of plague, his parents sent him up the Hudson River to Tarrytown to escape yellow fever. Irving lived. He went back home. He grew up. But the dark superstitions he'd absorbed up there in Tarrytown stayed with him. And two decades later, he wrote tonight's piece, which is considered the first American ghost story. Now, Irving gives a plausible explanation for readers not inclined to accept a spectral horseman, and most of his readers in 1820 were not inclined to accept a spectral horseman. And so for them, it can easily be a story of courtship and humorous revenge. But that skeleton of plausible denial is clothed in such powerful rags of darkness and superstition that I've always read the thing as a pure ghost story. So which is it? Folklore? Ghost story? Humor? Horror? Let's see if we can hold both ideas in mind. Dual ideas, side by side. As I pull down this old book from the shelf and you turn down the lights and relax. And we enter the world of Washington Irving and a bit of his 1820 tale, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, there lies a small market town by the name of Sleepy Hollow. The people there are subject to trances and visions and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley of Sleepy Hollow than any other part of the country. The dominant spirit of the place, the commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, is the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head was carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War and whose body was buried headless in the village churchyard. In this byplace, in a remote period of American history, a worthy by the name of Ichabod Crane sojourned in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. Crane was not inapplicable to his person, He was tall, exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms, big hands, feet that might have served for shovels. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken Ichabod Crane for famine descending upon the earth or some scarecrow escaped from a cornfield. When school hours were over, He would often see the smaller students home, especially if they happened to have good housewives for mothers who were noted for the comforts of their cupboard. 
Ichabod Crane was a huge feeder, and though lank, he had the dilating powers of an anaconda. He picked up many extra shillings by instructing the young in a particularly loud and nasal subset of psalm singing. There are quavers still to be heard in that valley which are said to be descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. He was esteemed as a man of great learning, for he had read several books all the way through, and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, in which he most firmly and potently believed. One of his chief sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives and listen to their tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and particularly of the horsemen. He, in turn, would delight them with anecdotes of witchcraft and dire omens and sounds in the air and frighten them with speculations upon comets and shooting stars. All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms that walk in darkness. And though he had seen many specters in his time and more than once been beset by Satan in his lonely night perambulations, daylight put an end to all these evils and Ichabod would have passed a pleasant life of it in spite of the devil and his works if his path had not been crossed by that elusive being who causes more perplexity to a man than a whole race of ghosts and goblins put together. That is, a woman. Among the musical disciples who assembled to receive his instructions in psalm singing was Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter of a substantial Dutch farmer. Katrina, plump as a partridge, rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, she was a bit of a coquette. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart for her, especially after he had seen her father's spacious table. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon that table, the peace of his mind was at an end and his only study was to how to gain the affections of Katrina Van Tassel. In this, he had more difficulties than the knight of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, and dragons to contend with. Ichabod had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette against a host of fearful adversaries of flesh and blood, the most formidable among them, a roaring blade by the name of Abraham, or by the Dutch abbreviation, Bram van Brunt. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, and people called him Bram Bones. A stouter man than Ichabod would have shrunk from competition. A wiser man would have. But, under cover of his role as the village singing master, he continued to make frequent visits to the farm, always conveniently at supper time, and would be seen sauntering along with his intended in the bewitching twilight as she sang psalms under his careful instruction. Brom would like to have carried things to open warfare and settle the matter by combat, but, weary of public opinion, he rather brooded in the shadows. And often of a night, after her singing lessons, Katrina entertained Brom's amorous 
taurines, which were something like the caresses of a wild bear, and she did not altogether discourage his hopes. In this way, matters went on for some time, until on a fine autumnal afternoon, an invitation came to Ichabod to attend a merrymaking that evening at the Van Tessel farm. He spent an extra half hour brushing up his best, indeed his only suit, and arrived upon a borrowed half-blind, once noble steed named Gunpowder. It was almost night, though here and there a slanting ray of sun prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountains. The castle of here Van Tassel thronged, old farmers spare and leather-faced, their brisk withered dames, lasses with their mothers, and the sons, their hair done up in the fashion of the times, if they could procure an eel-skin, eel-skin being esteemed as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair, and, of course, Brom Bones. And the table, oh, the table. On the table there was... Crumbling crullers, sweet cakes and shortcakes, ginger cakes and honey cakes, a whole family of cakes, apple pies, peach pies, pumpkin pies, slices of ham, smoked beef, preserved plums, peaches, pears, and broiled shad, and roasted chicken, and bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgly-piggly, with a motherly teapot sending up clouds of vapor from the mist. Heaven. Pure heaven. Ichabod Crane did ample justice to every dainty, and he danced. He danced with the lady of his heart, his partner, smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous ooglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten, sat brooding by himself in a corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of sage folks smoking on one end of the piazza. They were telling dismal tales, tales about funeral trains and mourning cries, and wailings heard about the tree where the unfortunate Major Andre was taken, tales of the woman in white who was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished in the snow. But the chief part of these stories turned upon the horseman, who, it was said, had of late been tethering his horse among the graves in the churchyard by a church sequestered on a knoll by a deep black stream covered by a wooden bridge, the whole of the scene thickly shadowed by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it, even in the daytime. The soldier, it was said, could not cross the bridge and would disappear in a burst of flame if it grew too near to the church. These tales were told in that drowsy undertone with which people talk in the dark, the faces of the listeners now and then gleaming in the glare of a pipe. They sank deep in the mind of Ichabod Crane, who repaid them in kind with large memorized extracts from Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft. When the revel broke up, the old farmers gathered together their families in the wagons and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills, sounding fainter and fainter until they gradually died away, leaving a scene of noise and frolic, silent and deserted. 
Only Ichabod lingered behind with Katrina. Whatever passed between them at this interview, something must have gone very wrong. Suffice it to say that after no great interval, Ichabod stole forth with the air of a man who had been sacking a hen house rather than a lady's heart, and without looking to the right or left, went straight to the stable and with several hearty kicks roused his steed most uncourteously from a sound sleep and from his dreams of corn and oats and whole valleys of clover. It was the very witching time of the night when Ichabod sullenly kicked his steed homeward along the sides of the lofty hills. In the dead hush of midnight... He could hear the barking of a watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson. There was no sign of life near him, save a melancholy chirp of cricket. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky. In the center of the road before him stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic. Major Andre's tree. As Ichabod Crane approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle and then to sing a psalm. Two hundred yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate Major Andre was captured, and it has ever since been a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, Ichabod summoned up all his resolution, gave his horse half a score kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across, but instead of starting forward, the old animal made a lateral movement Ichabod jerked the reins on the other side and kicked the horse with that foot. His steed dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to a stop just short of the bridge. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the bridge, was something, something huge, something misshapen, something towering, something gathered up in the gloom like a gigantic monster ready to spring. Who, who, who are you? No reply. Who are you? Still no answer. Ichabod shut his eyes. The opening notes of a fresh psalm upon his lips. Just then, the shadowy object put itself in motion and with a bound stood in the middle of the bridge. Though the night was dark and dismal, the form of the unknown could in some degree be ascertained. It was the shape of a horseman of large dimensions, mounted upon a black horse of powerful frame. It made no sound, 
but it pulled up on the blind side of Ichabod's old horse Gunpowder, who now got over his fright and hastily crossed the bridge, having, like Ichabod, no relish for a strange midnight companion. They quickened pace, hoping to leave the dark shape behind, but the stranger quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled Gunpowder up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. Ichabod quickened to a trot. So did the dark horseman. His heart began to sink. There was something in the moody silence of his companion that was appalling. It was soon accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, Ichabod Crane was horror-struck on perceiving that the rider was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested upon his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation, and he rained a shower of kicks and blows on his mount, but the specter started full jump with him. Away they dashed through thick and thin, stones flying, sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away, away, over his horse's head. In the eagerness of his flight, he saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond, heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him, felt its hot breath. The church! The church! Ichabod dared to cast a look behind him to see if his pursuer would vanish in a flash of fire and brimstone as the stories had foretold. Just as he did, he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups in the very act of hurling his head. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the terrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, an old gunpowder, the phantom black steed, and the goblin rider all passed by him like a whirlwind. The next morning, Gunpowder was found without his saddle, with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod Crane did not make an appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came. No Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse, no schoolmaster. A search party set out, and after diligent investigation, they came upon his traces. In the part of the road leading to the church was found a saddle trampled in the dirt. The tracks of horses' hooves were deeply dented in the road, and on the bank of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and near to that, a smashed pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not discovered. An old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after brought home the story that Ichabod Crane, or some person claiming to be him, was still alive. 
that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, changed his name, studied law, been admitted to the bar, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice of the court. But the old country wives, who were the best judges of these matters, they maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means. They tell his story around the winter evening fire. The schoolhouse, being deserted, fell to decay, and the ruins are reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate Ichabod Crane. And plowboys, loitering homeward of a still summer evening, have often said they hear his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. Well, it was Brom Bones, wasn't it? Of course it was Brom Bones. No such thing as ghosts. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. In the same book in which that story was published, Irving has a beautifully dark essay on English funeral customs and superstitions. He influenced Dickens, who certainly did believe in ghosts. I like to think that he wondered. I like to think he wondered if there are such things. I like to think that he kept both thoughts in mind as he wrote that. I wonder. And I say wondering is good. Keep thinking. Keep mulling. Keep sniffing the air, my friends. Maybe there's a new thing coming. Maybe there's more than one thing. But those are things for tomorrow, not tonight. For now, the books are all back on the shelves. You in your place of rest, me and mine. The old library is growing dimmer and dimmer, and your eyelids are heavy. Heavier, heaviest. Who knows what you will be tomorrow? Hmm? Who knows? It is not yet clear what we shall become. But I'll bet your dreams have a clue. Listen to them, my dear friends and sleep well. And remember, it's always midnight somewhere and in someone's soul. Good night. <laughs>